Hello, thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. I am, as always, uh, Ryan Engley, one of your hosts. Todd, the other host, how are you, bud? Hi, Ryan, I'm very good. Excellent. So today is uh, an episode that is uh, precedent-making. We are fulfilling uh, two uh, listener requests uh, in one with this episode. Uh, We are going to uh, talk about uh, dialectics uh, and both the development of the concept, uh, sort of like historically, uh, philosophically, and uh, before uh, coming in more specifically to um, to Hegel, and then the influence on uh, Lacan and how uh, Lacan is a dialectical thinker. Um, so shout outs to uh, Ken from Birmingham, who wanted like a flyover uh, of, of certain philosophical concepts, and uh, Sean in Dublin, who wanted uh, us to talk about Lacan and his relation to dialectics. So uh, with that little introduction, uh, Todd, where, where did dialectics start? How do we get here? So, well, maybe we should first define sort of what we think dialectics is, right? So, yeah, sure. So I think dialectics would be either mm-hmm. that contradiction is the driving force of thought and maybe of being itself, mm-hmm. or that identity is always involved in what negates it. So the way in which like negation, you can't get around negation. And, and I, I want to also put out two definitions by uh, 20th century Marxists. So Georg Lukacs mm-hmm. in History and Class Consciousness says dialectics means, the dial- or he says something like, the dialectical method means grasping everything by through the whole. Mm-hmm. And then Adorno, Theodore Adorno in Negative Dialectics says, the name dialectics says nothing more to begin with than objects don't go into their concepts without leaving a remainder. So those are two, I think those are two sort of interesting I think Lukács is probably a little more right than Adorno, and maybe we can unpack Adorno's statement a little later. But then, for sure, yeah. let's start just at the beginning. So, so <laughs> it seems like Plato is the is the originator of of dialectics, but for him, and I think this separates Plato from then Kant would be the first modern iteration of it. I think what separates Plato is that he, for him, dialectics is a form of argument, which mm-hmm. is opposed to sophist. Like the sophist will will have recourse to anything to win the argument. Right, right. Uh, and dialectics is tied to there is an idea of truth, and we mm-hmm. get to it through identifying contradiction. And you said to me earlier, you said to me that there's a relationship, I think this is a good point, between Aristotle's principle of oh, contradiction yeah. and mm-hmm. Plato's dialectical method, even though Aristotle would never have said, I don't think, oh, I've got the principle of non-contradiction from Plato's dialectical method. Sure, sure. <laughs> But yeah, that's kind no, of interesting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it is it is interesting and it's interesting to think about like that influence on on law. Like I like I think I mean in, in the we've said this in a num- in a number of different ways in a number of different podcasts, but one of the um central problems with like the current political uh, situation right now is this idea that um truth is uh is my truth it's your truth it's like it's 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 just infinitely uh, uh reproducible in 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 many many different forms and that there's no big t truth there's just little ones and i i think that uh, i don't know it's complicated but i think that there's been uh in some ways like a victory of sophistry like if you think about the way that like yeah. you think about the uh the way that a court trial plays out this is not interested in truth it's 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 who's gonna win the argument and who's gonna pull out the the best uh, the, the best stops to win on a like a technicality right and and um, and I think like you know just a, a little example on the uh, the problem with with producing little little t truths all the time is like uh, me too I think is like you know one of the great truth movements but even the people who are on the side of it I, they don't talk about it the right way like I think about the Oscars. And I forget who was introducing all of the the silence breakers, but what he said was that these women spoke their truth. No, right. they didn't. They didn't speak their truth. They spoke the truth. Right. That's you know, and like it blows my mind. So when you when you say that, what you've done is you've constructed your argument in such a way that like, well, so now what's so what's Harvey Weinstein going to say? Like, well, my truth is I didn't do that. Right, and, and so right, yeah. like it's just two competing truths. How do you know how to? I mean, how do we decide which truth is the yeah. Is the one that we're going to be invested in. I th- yeah. I totally agree with this. This is like my truth. That idea is, I think, re- like it's it's isn't it interesting that the moment in which women 
start to speak up about abuse, then all of mm-hmm. a sudden it's like, oh, they're not saying the truth. They're just saying their truth. <laughs> their you know, like it's, right, it's like right. a, it's a way of like completely undermining mm-hmm. the the like the the assault on patriarchy that right. is possible in the Me Too movement. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really yeah. good point by you. I so so I think that's so it's fascinating that Plato links contradiction to truth, and that will mm-hmm. that will be true later on in 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 both Kant and Plato. Although I think. Um, you know their take is going to be radically different. So yeah, th- I mean, yeah. we just want to do a brief little thing on absolutely on Plato and what he because it's for him it's not it's not so much a way there like I don't think for him dialectic has any it's it's purely an argumentative strategy that then yeah helps it's a, a rhetorical you might even it's say. almost but, rhetorical yeah, I think yeah, that's right yeah, I think it's yeah. right and then but for for someone like Kant so Kant in the in the in the latter half of the is it half? I guess it's half of of uh, critique of pure reason mm-hmm. uh, lays out what he calls the transcendental dialectic, and that really is the moment at which dialectic has a has a rebirth in mm-hmm. in philosophy, and and his idea is that we can know the limits of reason at mm. the points at which we run into contradiction. So him dialectic is is nothing but the identification of contradictions, which tell us we can't think past that right. so his, like the the famous i think we've talked about them before on the podcast like the the famous example is like does the world have a beginning in space and time or does mm-hmm. it not and and or has or, or has it been going on infinitely um is there a simple substance or is there just complexity all the way down is mm-hmm. there freedom or is there just natural law and is there a is there a necessary being or god or is there not and so mm-hmm. i think all those four what he calls the antinomies of pure reason it's mm-hmm. dialectic that identifies them as contradictions that we can't get beyond. Right, right. And then this is that's the exact point of Hegel's intervention. Right. I think that's really a key thing that 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 in some way Hegel takes his Kant's transcendental dialectic, this identification of stumbling blocks, fundamental stumbling blocks in thought, that, that Kant thinks, well, because we have these stumbling blocks in thought, we can't know anything about what's mm. really beyond our field of representation, because we try to go beyond it. We try to get, we try to think of that field of representation as a totality, like mm-hmm. what's the first, what's the beginning? Mm-hmm. We, we, we fail. We can't, reason runs into contradictions. And he, he sort of, he gives the arguments for pro and con and says, look, they both, they both fail. And so Hegel's point is, well, why does that failure of knowledge necessarily correspond to, we don't know anything about the way being is, you know? And so he thinks that the failure of knowledge actually indicates something on the level of being. That's interesting. So, so it's brought, it's it has this uh, an ontological valence that dialectics didn't have before, right? So say? that yeah. right. So so right. So I think that's right to say that. I mean, it does have an ontological valence in Kant's sense, insofar as it says we can't that, know anything about limit. ontology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So yeah. so that's that's sort of interesting. But but you're right. Hegel's the first thinker for whom dialectics all of a sudden becomes itself almost. An ontology. I mean, I think, or I think it's fair to say it's an ontology that mm-hmm. that logic is has ontological weight in Hegel's way of mm-hmm. thinking, and because mm-hmm. it's dialectical, because because we, his idea is that the contradictions that we come to in thought, if we are trying to think these absolute things like the beginning of the world in space and time, right? Um, if that if we run into contradiction there, then there must be something in being that makes that contradiction possible. So yeah. that's his idea. And so that's mm-hmm. how he kind of translates dialectics from just an epistemological or, or, or something operative or in rhetorical. Thought. Rhetorical, thought. right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. To something that has an ontological ontological valence or ontological weight to it. So that's the real... And, and, and then he, he starts to... He, he thinks... His whole movement of his thought then becomes focused on dialectics and on what I think is interesting is that he doesn't reject the principle of non-contradiction, which would be, mm-hmm. abs- I mean, some people, it's, it's 
it's, it's funny because some people think, oh, Hegel rejects the principle of non-contradiction. There's other people that think he never does at all. He just completely <laughs> follows it. And then there's my position would be he follows it up until the point at which contradiction becomes irreducible. And yeah. then he says we can really have contradiction. Because there's yeah. something, don't you think there's something kind of radical about the identification of the contradiction? Right. Oh, like I think. Yeah, a, absolutely. Yeah. yeah do do yeah. you want to talk? I mean, like, I think that this is one of the, the examples we were kicking around earlier. I think it makes sense to, to do a um, like a dialectical uh, sort of analysis of, of, a, of a situation, the of political situation. And I think it's the, uh, one of my favorite examples. Uh, and this is even something that uh, Trump said while he was on the campaign trail uh, about immigration is that the immigrant situation in America is such that, uh, we have these, we have these Mexicans coming in to the country and, and these are the, these are the two things that they do. They, um, they, they just bring their whole families in and they, 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 they like drive down, I don't know, property values. They'd set up shop and they ruin communities with, well, they get welfare. They, right? They're lazy. They're on they're public on, they, assistance. They, yeah. they soak all that stuff up. Right. And, uh, the other thing that they do presumably the same people uh is they take all the jobs and so what you have is this like because they're such hard they're so because they're so hard working yeah you have this utter incoherence between like the lazy uh uh, 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 mexican you you have like what you have like um i don't know like i think that this is probably what like the conservatives imagine is that you've got both like speedy gonzalez taking all the jobs and like regular gonzalez like not doing any jobs like yeah. I, I don't know. It's something. Well, that's like that. I think that's a key thing, Ryan. I think it's a nice example that you have to separate those two figures, right? You have to mm-hmm. have a so so. Let's just call it the conservative mind. It's not maybe nice, but um, so sure. the conservative mind has to ha- be dualistic, right? It has to mm-hmm. say, on the one hand, you have these certain immigrants that are lazy on public assistance, taking all our money. And mm-hmm. then you have to have, on the other hand, you have these other immigrants that are work that are stealing all our jobs because they're willing to do jobs we won't. They work hours that we won't. They're they're mm-hmm. just more industrious than we are. So, as long as you have a dualism, right. it's perfectly it's perfectly easy to to sustain that, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. certain ones are this, certain ones are that, and never the right. twain shall meet except right. in like the figure my of truth, the immigrant. your truth, right? Like if there's no yeah 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 yeah. yeah. So dialectics would say no, 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 no. There, those two people are are the same, right? Mm-hmm. Those two people are the same. Like the, like the, in your in in like the the figure of the immigrant mm-hmm. is at the same time, like coming to 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 lazy, not coming to work hard, and hyper industrious, extra hardworking, etc. So that I mean, I think that's the. Well, that's it's the, the genius I mean, of dialectics, but yeah, go ahead. yeah. Well, no, it's the it's that like the so what you need to see at that is that like that that idea that like is in like that idea is in like is of course in contradiction with itself, and that nonetheless shows you the truth of the conservative position, right? On it, right, right. You know, right. and and I think that that's um, or, that's the important but, thing. Okay, here. now okay, that was it. So that's it. So it's interesting because what you just. That was a kind of Kantian analysis of the contradiction. Oh, okay. So right, okay. so you said, like, okay, it reveals something about the thinker, her or himself, right? The conservative sure. thinker, her or himself, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Kant would say about what contradiction reveals. Mm-hmm. What Hegel would say is, no, actually, that's true about the immigrant. Yeah. The immigrant is at once lazy and industrious, just like all of us are. Just like all of us, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, like, that's that's like, the lesson. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna sit around for three hours and watch a football game. Yeah, and I'm like, I think pretty hard. Like I'm gonna afterwards, I'm gonna read four hours of Hegel. So like, sure. you know, so I think it nicely captures the way on both this opposite, like. So there's some truth to Kant's position, right? Like it does mm-hmm. reveal something about the thinker. But at the right, same time, right, right. it's also, I think you have to recognize that the that one thing dialectics suggests is that this, the, the, the subject itself is contradictory, right? Like it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's at odds with itself. It's, you know, and I think... Right, I, and then I, that goes, and then, then doesn't that also like um, clarify the political situation as well, which is that like it shows you that uh, for... 
the you know in the like republican imagination like they are only ever one thing right they're only right. ever like the, the the pure hard-working subject and uh, but also there's the thing that like allows the, um allows them to get out of it which is that um like I think I said at the end of um, I can't remember if this is the last episode or the other one, which is that like if you if you bathe yourself in, uh, in in sort of like religious morality and then you you like pretty much anything that you do that co- contradicts that or conflicts with it. It's fine because you really believe and you're like you're like a believer. Right. Like which is why, um, you know, you can have people defend like you can have ministers defend Trump and attack Hillary Clinton at the same time because they evangelicals uh, believe that they're going to get some something out of out of Trump as president that they wouldn't get out of Hillary Clinton because she, while also being a believer, is committed more to the tenets of secular morality. Uh, right. And, right. Yeah. Right. 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 So I think she's more of a believer than Trump. Interesting. Oh, I mean, like, of yeah. course. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. but she yeah. would not overturn Roe versus Wade. Right. Like, right. that's right. the, you know, right. that's, that's although I don't thing. know that it's I, I, I think you're right. And that's true. But I don't know that the support for him among evangelicals is transactional. I know that's how everyone reads it. It's yeah, true, like he's giving. True. I almost think it's his very obscenity and i think you said this at some point that that religious morality today is much more a license to like really enjoy yourself where a secular yeah. morality is like it's hyper restrictive no, yeah. I, I i had this fascinating exchange in my, in my classes i'm like can you say um do you feel um super egoic restriction to act in a politically correct manner mm-hmm. and no one said anything and then one person said, which I thought was absurd because I feel it, you know, and I, you know, mm-hmm, I know it's mm-hmm. true. But then one person said, no, I'm just worried that my, what I say is going to be interpreted as politically correct, even though it's not motivated by that. And I thought, mm. well, okay, that, I, I'm sure that the, that is genuine, but mm-hmm. to me, that's even a more of a sign of was, the power of the just say, yeah. super ego. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't that that doesn't that prove the point? Yeah, like, that the I, super. I think, yeah. So I yeah. think your point about the way in which secular morality today is so super egoically strong, and the, mm-hmm. and the religious morality is like it's like a license to you know. And I think Trump <laughs> is the embodiment of that. Like he's the way the evangelical conservative enjoys. Like that's yeah. the you know. Yeah, so and, th- and so that's and that is that that's Hegel's dialectical position. Then absolutely right, and yeah. I think let me just yeah. I I, have a, I I love this example of I think that the great figures of of Hegelian what I would call like Hegelian politics are are mm-hmm. these are seventies feminists who who mm. totally took up this idea of of you know p- what patriarchy does is it doesn't allow women to be contradictory, so it says right. like look. Like the patriarchal image of women, virginal or whore, right? Mm-hmm. But absolutely dualist in its conception, right? right. Absolutely, mm-hmm. like there are virgins here, there are whores here, and then I think the claim of seventies feminism, like Germaine Greer, Shulamith mm-hmm. Firestone, these people, was no, no. Virgin Mary was a slut. Like that's the. That's the, right. you know, like yeah. the, you have to think of the virgin and the slut together. Mm-hmm. And, and that contradiction is what it means to be a woman. And, and I think one of the things patriarchy says is men are allowed to be contradictory, but women aren't. Right. right. Like that's the, that's the basic. Women have to be dualist. Men can mm-hmm. be contradictory. And so one of the, I think that's a great victory of feminism is to say, you know, women can be contradictory as well. I think that's, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, uh, that's a fabulous example. That is just quick. Pl- I know you would never do this, but I'm going to do this. That's a quick plug for your book. Cause you talk about this in your book coming out, right? Which is my book on Hegel. Yeah. That's one of on the Hegel. examples. Yeah. Yeah. And so the title I, I is, plagiarized myself. <laughs> you plagiarized yourself. That's right. You should have cited. I'm trying to keep you out of trouble here. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't, yeah. what is the title? I forget the emancipation it, after Hegel. That's the title. That's so, all right. Okay. Awesome. Um, so we, Let's see. One of the things that we want to talk about, I think that this makes sense to get into here, is uh, you brought up the uh, Lukács and Adorno at the beginning. Yeah. And I think that we've, like, gone enough into the conversation that we can bring those two ideas. Yeah, let's bring it back. So let's recite what they are. So Adorno's notion Mm -hmm. is 
sorry, Lukács's idea is that the, the dialectical method means relating everything to the whole. So it's, right. it's always having reference to the whole. And for Adorno, mm-hmm. the idea is objects don't go into their concepts without leaving a remainder. So there's a kind of mismatch between concepts and objects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, Lukács, I think, it's funny because Adorno sounds nicer. It sounds like, <laughs> but I think Lukács' idea is better. It's depending on how you understand whole, right? Right. Well, it needs to be. I mean, uh, does whole needs to be thought of? I think with like a uh, like parenthesis around the W, right? <laughs> or or around yeah, the H. Yeah. I mean, like either yeah, either you yeah. know, so that it, it it indicates that there is a like because what Adorno gets right, um, it's it, like and and you said this earlier is that what if what Hegel if what Hegel does is to follow non-contradiction, you know, until contradiction is uh, irreducible, then yeah. that's Adorno thinking he's reading Hegel like totally faithfully, which is that like it's this irreducible kernel. I gave you this example before the show is like Adorno's understanding of dialectics or understanding of Hegel is that what a dialectical method is, is using uh, like using a leaf blower to find a needle in a haystack. So like you you get rid of all of the hay and you're just left with the needle, which is like the irreducible kernel uh, of of contradiction. That's the object that doesn't that doesn't doesn't leaves a remainder that doesn't go into its concept without leaving a remainder. Yeah, that's the right. Right. And then so that can we use the same. Can you describe Hegel himself through with the same leaf blower? Well, I could. I think I could do uh, Lukács' definition, which is like it's uh, it's to find out that the haystack is made of needles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's good. And, and, and I think that like that's you do need to think, I mean, to perform a, a dialectical, you know, thinking about it is you do need to think both of those ideas, right. I think, at the same time. But well, well, for Lukács, there's a needle everywhere. Right, like right, you exactly. You yeah, can't, yeah. and I think what Hegel would say, and I think that's closer to what Hegel would say, right? Like, I think he mm-hmm. would say, you can't separate the needle from the haystack. Like, you can't just mm-hmm. that. Like the the haystack is implicated in the needle, and the mm-hmm. needle is implicated in the haystack. But the other thing I think he would say is, our there's we discover contradiction through our leaf blower itself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like it's the like. And I think this is the problem with Adorno's idea that for 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 Hegel, it's the very it's the very unfolding of the concept that ends up being contradictory to itself, and that's mm-hmm. what he means by dialectics. So, gotcha. for instance, if we trace out so the first section of phenomenology, which is the easiest to talk about, I think, called sense mm-hmm. certainty, right? Like sense certainty means all I can trust are my senses. Right, yep. like that's all. Like that's the that's the only knowledge that I have. And he quickly. Which, which can I can I put in a thing here? Yeah. That that I think, um, I saw this um this article on Medium that I really really didn't like, about um how like someone was saying that we were in a a post Enlightenment era, and I think that there's this like you know what's like post truth post Enlightenment blah blah yeah. blah like and I think, excuse me, in general people are. Because technology advances, people think that, like, you know, we have to always be moving forward, like with everything. So, you know, um, postmodernism has to be completely different from modernism because it's later. Right. Like, yeah. you, you know, um, and we right now, because we're so far from the Enlightenment era, we have to be after it. But I mean, is this not I mean, is that not flat earthers like what Hegel is talking about, like sense certainty, like you can only be certain about like what it is that you have direct experience with? No, absolutely true. Like this is the so anyway, what you're going to talk about, I just wanted to put this in is like we're not if if you want to, to, to diagnose some of the like contemporary like condition and thought we're 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 not moved to post truth. We've moved to pre enlightenment in and and that's that's what's happened and so hegel's uh, uh, idea on sense certainty i think is like you know it's good that you're talking about it. i think it's one of the most relevant things right now that that he talked about so anyway i wanted to put that sort of like yeah no i think that's absolutely absolutely crucial and so his idea is that if you think all you can trust are your senses you can't even say that all i can trust are my senses <laughs> right like you can, like so so that's one i mean he doesn't he doesn't work it out quite in this way, but that that's the upshot of what he says, that that you can't even, that sense certainty can't even articulate itself as mm-hmm. a mode of truth. Like when it tries to articulate itself as a mode of truth, it always, it ends up going beyond 
the ver- it, it, it's what it it itself acknowledges as the the only kind of truth claims that it can make. So, so there's a way in which it has to. Tr- it sa- it always is saying too much, you know. So mm. because like just to 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 kind of nail that down, like like for me, like because like in explaining sense certainty you are all you are going outside of yourself and outside of your own experiences oh, to your own exp- senses right yeah your right, own senses right. to explain something that you have experienced right yeah. like once i even say i'm just going to employ the concept of he this is the ones he uses like this sure. here now like mm-hmm. already like those concepts refer to a whole larger structure that mm-hmm. makes them make sense as like this only makes sense as this as opposed to all these other things, right? Like right, and right, now right. only makes sense as opposed to all the other possible times. So so mm-hmm. this is a it's a nice way of understanding what Hegel means by dialectics, because it means like the thing that you're identifying is involved in all these things that it's not. And so mm-hmm. that's how that's how for him dialectics works and how contradiction is discovered and how why Adorno's wrong, because every position if you if you play it out you can see the way in which it undermines itself like like that's what you did with the anti-immigration position right like you just you just played it out like just play it out and if you play and that's why i think um zizek's idea that the the best way to undermine an ideology is to take the ideology at its word that's a very hegelian idea that's a Mm -hmm. this idea that you just play out the the structure itself and then you you see how it it's at odds with itself. And I think that's what Adorno doesn't get. But mm. it does, what's interesting is this is reconcilable with Lukács' definition because mm-hmm. just playing it out means seeing the whole, right? Like grasping yeah, it as yeah. a whole. Yeah, exactly. That's really, really great. And I think like, like um, to go back to uh, the source of our favorite examples, which is uh, World War II and, uh, and Nazism, like uh, I, I forget where um, Zizek talks about this. It could be, for they know not what they do, uh, or, or maybe he's, he's mentioned this in a number of different places, but like the way that, um, Nazi propaganda about the figure of the Jew worked was that like at the same time, it's a lot, it's, it's, they're different, uh, stereotypes, but it's the same thing as Mexicans in America today yeah. where you, you had, um, uh, listen, fathers, look out for the the suave, charming Jew because he will take your daughters and 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 right. you know you, they'll and ingratiate himself into your family and impregnate your daughter. Blah blah blah. But um, and then also uh, the Jew is slimy. That's how you can know the Jew. Like it's dirty. They don't wash. And so that you have this like incredibly charming like um, Rat Pack. Uh, you know, 1950s the Frank Sinatra Jew, and then also like uh, like a like a slum dweller, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, like ra- raggedy clothes, like um, Charlie Chaplin's Tramp, right? Like right, and so, right, right. and that incoherence is the thing that coheres that ideological field. And that's, you know, so you don't say like, well, these are, these ideas are are, are are contradictory, like they don't make sense. It's like, no, like, this is how you make sense of Nazism. This is how you make right, sense of that right, time. Right, and, right. and, um, you know, again, and it goes back to the other thing that you said, that, like to, um, that like, yes, people, people, of course, like, I mean, there are times where like, I don't shower for three days and whatever. And then there are times where I like to think I'm quite charming, you know? Yeah. So like everybody, everybody is, is like that. You're this once. charming man, Ryan. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that's pretty good. I like the sort of ambiguous sexuality that that implies as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 but um but yeah anyway just like uh if you wanted to say anything about that example yeah but. no i think it's great i mean i think the i i, I what, what struck me when i just when you were saying that was that so plato and kant i think would say a similar thing to the nazi right they they would mm-hmm. both say well can't you see that you shouldn't be anti-semitic mm-hmm. because your anti-semitism is relying on a contradiction so for them dialectics right. would mean I identify the contradiction and then I get it, rid of it. it. I get rid of it. I, yep. I, I, or I say I can't think that anymore because that's a contradiction. Mm-hmm. For Hegel, interestingly, I think would say, "Yeah, you kind of you got it right. The Jew is both those things, right?" right. Like he would say, yeah. <laughs> he would because say, everybody. "Just yeah. like you are, just like, like you what, are." You've, yeah. you've kind of so so your anti-Semitic picture of the Jew. If you bring together the two contradictory things then you you correctly apprehend the contradictory nature of subjectivity. 
right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that's the to me that's the great you know step forward uh, or it, the great leap forward in Hegel and. It, it continues it nice, to be radical, I think. It continues like, to be radical. Because yeah, like yeah. what you were saying about about like the Platonic or the Kantian position on that uh you know, on the Nazism, right? That like this is contradictory, so now we, we get rid of it. Like it's kind of the CNN response to Trump. Yeah, it's it's like it's Isn't I mean it? it's even in something as banal as like I think I I've probably used this example before. It's in something as banal as baseball, like 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 analytics, right? Like there's no clutch hitting. Because we can't come up with numbers for it because it doesn't make sense that someone would get better uh, than they normally are. So clutch doesn't exist. It's a contradiction. So we just get rid of it like that. I mean, like, I think this is like a, you know, it, it. it, it, it's, I mean, I think that you could probably... Um, Isn't there a, Let me give you... Can I do a little dialectical analysis of clutch hitting? Like, what if sure. it's this? <laughs> yeah. What if yeah. it's that the clutch hitter or the clutch quarterback, clutch performer in sports just mm-hmm. doesn't get worse? Yeah, right. Well, right. and this would be, I think, a nice kind of Lukacian way of understanding dialectics as thinking the whole, right? Like, mm-hmm. everyone around that player mm-hmm. gets worse, Mm-hmm. In the time, in the clutch time, because they're nervous, their heart rate accelerate, et cetera, et cetera. But right. the clutch player just acts like, you know, there's this great example of Joe Montana in the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, it was against the Bengals, and so yeah. he's crushed. But yeah. he, he like, he comes to the huddle. They're down by, I don't know, whatever, five points maybe. I think it was he, five, yeah. yeah. And he, 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 and they have to drive the length of the field in a minute and a half. And he, he looks to the players in the huddle. He goes, you know what? There's John Candy's up there in the, in the stands. <laughs> right. And the players are like, what is he doing? They're, they're like, they, somebody, I heard a player say, we immediately knew we, we had the game won. That's, like, yeah. All he did was just say, there's John Candy. Can you believe that? He's here in the stands. Because he was like, look, it's to me, it's like most players, even if it was early in the game, wouldn't be calm enough to say, no. to say that. You know? Well, no, so, you, you'd be like, they're too distracted. They're not in the game. Your head's not in the game. you got to get in this. You don't understand the situation, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Montana understood it perfectly, which is like, yeah. we're just going to do what – we're just going to go play football and be dead chilled out about it, and we're going to be better than them because they, they're they going to get tight and they're going to make mistakes. Well, and that's what happened. A Bengals yeah. defensive back dropped in an interception in the end zone. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. yeah because so you know, it, it was too big, right? Because he yeah. didn't see John Candy in the crowd. He didn't see John Candy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's great. So that's, I mean, I mean, to yeah. me, that's dialectics, right? Like that's so yeah. the analytic position. It's nice that it's analytics. And that's true. And it's yeah. the analytic <laughs> position. So the analytic position looks at the player, her himself, right, and 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 tries mm-hmm. to think what's the what's different, what's different, what's different. Yeah. But the dialectical position says, well, you have you can't think about the player in isolation because there's a relationship between the the rest, you know the the player and the, the the subject and the whole objective field around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you just used a word that I think is going to mark our point of uh, departure from Hegel. If you think this is the time to do it, yeah, let's let's you, let's have a departure. That's so cool. you mentioned the subject, and I think yeah. that this, how do we understand Lacan as a a, a dialectician, if you like, of, uh, of of psychoanalysis? And I think that it, it comes here in the in the subject. Yeah. And with uh, all contradiction and also with um, Adorno's sort of like irreducible kernel being the object ah, that nonetheless makes sense of the whole that Lukács is talking about. Right. Like, the, yeah, the, I think that's the, a nice way to bring it all together. Yeah. yeah. And I think isn't so I think what separates Lacan from, say, other psychoanalytic thinkers is that he rejects this notion of a divide between subject and object or between internal and external right mm-hmm. like that and i think it's interesting because a lot of people identify and look on himself melanie klein is an influence on him but mm-hmm. for klein there's it's clear like the, the object can be interjected but it's clear mm-hmm. that the object is first external in order to be interjected you know so there's this yeah. kind of there's and i think for most cyclonic thinkers there's this freud i think is a, more of a question but i think there's this kind of divide between internal and external. Mm-hmm. And what's great about the concept of objet a, or object cause of desire, is that it, it and this is why Lacan calls it extimate, right? Like, so it's not, mm. which isn't a word, like it's, it's right, intimate, right. but it's exterior. So yeah, it's, yeah. So, uh, so I think that that, so it's, it's both in the external field and it's my, it's the point at which I am out there 
mm-hmm. shaping the external world or, or, or I'm affecting the external world. No, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, and film is like, serves like some of the great examples of this. Like, like yeah, why is that? Why does film get this? <laughs> gets to be the privileged <laughs> example for everything. I don't know. Yeah, it's it so, yeah, right. Well, because one, well, I mean, I think because you and I are doing it, but for two, it's true. Um, <laughs> right. Like, and, and it's uh, the, the spot from, of the, the, the viewer in the image, uh, you know, the, the, the subject yeah. in like, the the subject in the object I guess is probably right the way, so the it's interesting it, yeah. like let's I I think it's it's maybe worth talking about the difference between the painting and the and the film right because I think mm. Lacan's examples are never filmic he That's doesn't true. have a single filmic example he has two pain two primary painting examples and I feel like the painting example doesn't quite do it as well so Hans Holbein's the ambassadors is the famous right. one in seminar eleven and then mm-hmm. he does this amazing thing where he invites Michel Foucault's the seminar 13. So it's called L'Objet de la Psychanalyse, the object of psychoanalysis is seminar mm-hmm. 13. And he invites, so it's two years after seminar 11, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, <laughs> right, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, he invites Foucault and then he talks, he's going to give an analysis of Las Meninas, the Velasquez painting that Foucault famously mm-hmm. analyzes in his preface to order of things, order of things. Yep. And, and, Fascinatingly, Foucault doesn't come. Lacan's <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> next time I'm going to give my analysis. I can't wait to have you. And then Foucault says, he's like, I don't understand. <laughs> Foucault's not here in the audience. It's kind of funny. Uh, either it was, I don't, I don't, I prefer to think it's like this great passive aggressive move on Foucault's yeah. part, which, oh, which makes me like him more. Like this, yeah, yeah. You know, fuck him. He's going to do an analysis that I made famous. I'm going to just not come. Not I'm going to tell there. him I'm going to come. And then I'm not going to come because <laughs> yeah. I think it really was prickish on Lacan's part, right? Like it's, yeah. you know, I mean, he just, yeah, he's a sort of a not a very nice guy. But um, uh, <laughs> so wait, did he was Lacan's attitude was it like um, uh, that that um, I, I you you didn't quit, I fired you? Like was that that his? I think. Response? Well, you know what's fascinating too, and I, this is what I this I think is even more is even worse is that he constantly. <laughs> praises Foucault's analysis and says, I'm just going to add one little thing to it. And then he like totally undermines it. <laughs> so, so it's like, it's like he doesn't even avow that he's really, that it's a kind of a full frontal attack, you know, on it's pretty good. That's so pretty anyway, good. so the yeah, whole yeah. bane is the, most people probably know it is the famous painting of the, the, these world travelers. And then in the mm-hmm. bottom of the painting is a skull that's, that's, anamorphically inserted in the painting. So only if you're on mm-hmm. the top, I think it's the top top right, right or top right yeah. side, you can look yeah. down. I once spent, it was, that painting was on the wall at, I taught at Loyola Marymount University. I once spent 20 minutes trying to get the person <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> We're like, she had her head against the wall. She's like, I still don't see it. <laughs> so it can be hard to see. Yeah. Um, anyway, so there, so, and that, that skull is of course the, the spectator's, is the point at which the spectator's in the image because you have to mm-hmm. move to see it. So it, sh- it yeah. sort of takes your positioning into account. And it's, and it's saying to you, like, in the end, we're all dead. It's this memento mori. Mm-hmm. In the end, we're all dead. And these, all the riches of these, tri- like, you're enjoying looking at that. In the end, that's all you are. I had a student ask me about that. I wanted to tell you what I, what I said, but um, she, she said to me that, because the point that I made, I was talking about the the picture is like like Lacan. One of the things he says is that like this is the this is the point at which your mastery over the image fails because this sees you before you see it. Yes. Like like it like like the painting knows you're gonna be drawn here. Uh, yes. Like you're gonna be looking. And I had a student come up to me afterwards. She said, um, she said, well, what about when you've already seen it and you know? She said, because I've seen that painting before, so I know. Um, like like I I don't I don't I don't look there immediately. And my response to her was, I said, like, that actually shows the 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 gaze that actually shows that point even stronger, because after you know it's there, you have adjusted the way that you're looking. So even though that spot like you're claiming, like doesn't have the power over you as a viewer anymore, it's exerting even more force because you're looking elsewhere. Because you, you're 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 choose, you're thinking you're choosing not to pay attention to it when that has actually completely articulated the way that you experience the visual field. Did she give you a tip? 
<laughs> I mean, that's a that's an amazing like you went beyond what a professor would say. I mean, <laughs> you deserved a tip for that. That was a great point. Yeah. Well, oh, thank point. you. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, what? I'll tell I'll tell Clark. Maybe they'll. Uh, I'll yeah. Get maybe you'll job. get it. Yeah. I think yeah. you should get a little pay bump for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, or they maybe I mean, given what our view of 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 earning money, maybe you should get a pay cut. Pay cut, yeah. yeah I you get did a good job. Cut your pay. Yeah, yeah that's it. Less money. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think so. So then his other let's more quickly his other sure. example. So the example of of Las Meninas is that mm-hmm. so whereas Foucault thinks he knows what's being painted on the we can only see the back of the painting the big painting that's being painted. Mm-hmm. Um, Foucault thinks we know it's the royal couple and so this is the epic of perfect representation. He thinks like Kant's point is we have no idea what's being painted. All we have is this blank space. And so, mm. and we're, we're forced to like, we're drawn to the blank space and yet we don't, and we're sort of spending all our time speculating on what could be painted on the black, on the blank space. And so for him, that's, that's nice. the point of gaze, right? Yeah, so, yeah. okay. So those are good. And I think they do a nice example of showing the dialectical, they show Lacan as a dialectical thinker, right? Like he, he mm-hmm. doesn't, he doesn't respect, maybe dialectics means this, like not respecting the dualism of subject and object. Mm-hmm. At mm. least for Lacan, I think that's yeah. what dialectics would mean. I think that's what it would mean for him. Like you cannot, that dualism does not exist. Like you cannot have a dualistic conception of subject and object. That's really interesting. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to jump to it, like to talk about another field, but I mean like that, I suppose that would be like the primary uh, error if you're thinking this way in like an object oriented ontology, right? Like that's it, absolutely. It, yeah. Right? It's assuming yeah. that, the, yeah, it's assuming that division the Lacanian position would be that, you know, what you take out of the object is you put in it already. Like, before, right, or before you're, you, you right, know. right, right. Or you're involved in the objective field. Like, yeah. your desires are already object, they're involved in that field in a way that Graham Harmon, like the main representative of that position, yeah. wouldn't avow. Like, he, like his right. whole point is let's think about that without our contamination. But mm-hmm. Lacan's point is like you're sorry, it's already contaminated. Like you're contaminating the whole thing. Like the objective field is all contaminated with subjectivity. There's no mm-hmm. way to withdraw that contamination. Yeah, my my example, the example that I like a lot is mishearing a song lyric and then singing that misheard song lyric to yourself all the time until what is you the, find Yeah, go ahead. That's, yeah, until 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 you find out that you were wrong. What were you gonna say though? What is the locus classicus of that of that? phenomenon um have you seen the movie uh, the way way back no i haven't seen it uh it's a phenomenal film just for if anyone's listening that's a it's a great film to see but uh uh so what's her name uh emma no it's not emma i forget i almost forget her name but uh uh she was in 2012 anyway i'm not gonna say (laughs) it doesn't matter um so the one character is she's mm-hmm. she's like dancing around, singing around, and, and the song by Mister Mister Kyrie Eleison, okay, is playing on the radio, and she sings the song "Carry a Laser." <laughs> she says "Carry a Laser," you know, and so yeah. and everyone starts to laugh at her. They're like, "It's not," and she goes, "Of course it is. What's the?" Like she doesn't know the Latin, and it doesn't make sense to her, you know. So yeah, but yeah. I thought that to me is the great example of a of the the way the mishearing becomes like shape totally shaping what the objective experience is, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, that's a great example. I mean, there, there's like um, I, I I was in a bookstore and they had um. There's a bookstore uh, in Cranston, Rhode Island that uh, sells records, and they um, they have these coasters with misheard song lyrics on them, <laughs> and uh, you know, like uh, they're like a couple. The one made famous by friends, like "Hold Me Closer," Tony Danza, right? Yeah, like yeah. A, you know, which I'm not actually sure is misheard or if that, that was like that's intentional. <laughs> well, um, there's one in um, there's one in "Long Kiss Goodnight." Do you know that movie with Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson? I do, yeah. I don't think I remember this. The song is an England Dan and John Ford Coley uh, song, like, I'd really love to see you tonight. And he goes, I'm not talking about John Lennon. And, <laughs> and the, the lyric is, I'm not talking about moving in. And, oh, that's and, really funny. And so it's another one where they have the... Per- it's funny how... I wonder how often it's a name that gets inserted that's where it's just, you know, lyrics, which is, I think that's, you know... That would be worth a kind of. I mean, this is a great Freudian 
phenomenon. Oh, right? like, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the misheard as a the mishearing as a kind of paraphrasis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that and and I think that the um what the kind of power of it is like there's there are there are a lot of bands that like like Beach House is a band that I like and I maybe I've I have I've listened to everything that they've done and I could probably tell you like six words like it out of anything that they like because it's that's just, interesting i was going to say the band that does it the most is rem like they that's pretty good too yeah you know, oh, I like think, what yeah. are the words and, and what's fascinating is that off on all some of their albums like michael stipe will be it'll say instrument voice like, mm. as if the voice is just an ob it's like a kind of like yeah. thing like as if the yeah. voice is just an object and the words that he says are just meant to to fit within the what the song demands and not that's really great that's yeah. have you ever heard of Mondegreen or Mondegrand? I'm not sure I'm saying it right. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's like a po it's like a poetic form of like a, a, of composition where like the words are meant to be misheard. Oh, and yeah. um yeah and and I think that like that's that that's the the intent. Anyway, the whole point like I mean get back to, to dialectics is like that this this is the when if you're listening to something that is meant to be misheard, like, and your attempt to, or even a difficult to hear your attempt to make sense of it, like to hear it, like you're, it's coming from your own subject position, like in that thing. And so like, if you're, you're taking, if the way that you think about you're hearing this song that's occupying objective reality and all you're doing is, is, is trying to, uh, trying to decipher it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like objectively like that. No, no, no. Like there, there's something before you heard the song that like you're putting into it already. And that, I mean, right. that would be, I mean, desire would be sort of like the obvious right. answer. And then, but just a Hegelian twist would be that the song that they had to make the song in a way that was, <laughs> that was ambiguous enough for you to be able to do that. Right. Like right. that would be the, yeah. so, so, so for Hegel would, would, and I think this is why the question is whether psychoanalysis has an ontology, right? Because mm. I don't think Lacan would say what Hegel just said, right? Like I think for him, it's just, that dialectics just is the subject's, you know, it's the subject's distortion of what it sees. Mm -hmm. it, and I mean, I, I guess it is the distortion of the objective field in this sense, like the, when he says the big other doesn't exist, right? Like that yeah. is, that's a way of saying the field is, is, is never, it's, it's self-contradictory, right? It's never, mm -hmm. it's never fully complete unto itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. This is the, I mean, in a previous podcast, we, uh, I talked about um, Alain Badiou's, uh definition of the the real and Lacan, and one of his uh, his examples is the 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 number quote number uh, infinity, which is what completes the field of numbers, but right. it is impossible, you know. And then this is what Joan Kopchak famously says about um, sex contra uh, Judith Butler in uh, Read My Desire is that like you know it is uh, sex is is um, a a sort of a structural incompleteness that completes the field. It is yeah. not. Um, you know, hopelessly incomplete, and that's why you know it, we we have this uh, um, proliferation of of, uh, of 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 gender. This is you know Jones' argument. It's that like you know it, it's incomplete, and that's what completes it. And so yeah, I this, yeah, I think don't you think that's really point. yeah? I think that's I I I think you could even make the argument that the origin of dialectics lies in the fact that we require an incompletion, a structural incompletion to complete the field, right? That's like, really, really great. That an yeah. incompletion is inserted to, to provide the whole or a completion, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that's the origin of dialectics, and that's why Lukács' definition works as a mm -hmm. definition of dialectics, because if you think the whole, then you have to think the H-O-L-E, not just the yeah. W-H-O-L-E. You right, have to right, think, right. and that whole is precisely an incompletion that gets inserted to finish it off. And I think that's also the relationship for Lacan between big other and object A, right? Like object. So big other is in, is, is, is lacking. Mm -hmm. And then the, the space in the lacking big other is filled with object A or the extimate part of the subject. Right. Mm -hmm. But it never, it's always, it's, it's itself. It's a part that doesn't fit. So it, it, right. it does fit, but it's itself incomplete. And so it's mm -hmm. never, it's never creating a perfect, you know, complementarity or perfect closure, all the, or perfect harmony, all these things that Lacan will constantly inveigh against, mm, right? So that's mm, yeah. so I think that's an interesting way to think of him as a dialectical thinker, just just dialectical relationship only of the object field, like only of mm -hmm. relationship between lacking big other and object A, 
right? Their relationship is dialectical, but I love the way you formulated that, that it's this mm. incompletion that's inserted to, to complete the field. Yeah, I think, you know, you said something earlier that I want to sort of go go back to, like just a couple minutes ago about um, uh, psychoanalysis and ontology. And uh, one of the things that I, I think I said this at the end of our previous episode on uh, drive and desire, um, that um, I think it's in um, Imagine There's No Woman, uh, Joan Kopchak writes that, uh, I, I think the, the quote is she said that we're, we're obliged to see that uh, death drive substitutes as an ontology in Freud. Yeah. And you and I talked about that um, on the phone a little bit. Do you want to speak to that at all? Like, as you said, uh, like what, where is the, the sort of fault line between um, it being uh, ambiguous if there's an ontology in, in psychoanalysis or unless I'm well, misquoting you? No, I think that, I mean, I guess I would claim there's an ontology, but I do think it's like, like is like the question is, I think is what can one extrapolate from death drive, right? Like if mm-hmm. we if we discover the existence of death drive and we accept that, then mm-hmm. what can what ontological like what ontological ramifications does that have? Like so for Hegel, for Hegel the the existence of con- like logical contradiction leads him back to ontological contradiction, and I think mm-hmm. the the and I think. I don't know what Joan's position on this would be, but I do think that you can do the same thing with death drive, that you can say, like, there must be some ontological structure that makes the emergence of this self-destroying entity possible, right? Like, it, hmm. there, mm-hmm. there has to be something that makes that possible to emerge. Now, we, like, so we know that there, there, there is something rather than nothing. So yeah. it can't be just that everything like there's only this drive to negate right because mm-hmm. then there would be never nothing would ever have been formed so i think that what we can say though is that 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 there's that ontologically there can't be like everything can't be driven by its own like just pure straight movement forward right mm-hmm. like i think mm-hmm. there's i think there like death drive does seem to me to put into question just the universality of a evolutionary model of of the universe like a t- as, completely yeah. evolutionary progress as like an upward forward. trajectory yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That, that yeah in other words like like uh you know like if it's if it's moving forward it's moving forward backwards like it's mm. you know you mm. know like the crabs movement like i think that Something like that would be the ontological implication. I don't know. Were you thinking something? Oh else? no, no. I, I I think I think that's great. Well, what you were saying was it's almost like you said that um, uh, that that um, it made me think that like Freud does what Hegel does, but in reverse. Like like Freud found an ontological contradiction, and that led him to like formulate a, like an epistemological and like like a theoretical contradiction. Yeah. You yeah. know, and 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 for for Hegel is the reverse that yeah, like, I the, think lo- the lo- logical, yeah. logical contradiction yeah. leads him to discover like, like ontological, ontological. Yeah. 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 I mean, if, if people object to Hegel, I think that's the objection, right? Like mm-hmm. they would say you can't go from logic to ontology. Mm-hmm. Like there's just mm-hmm. no, because, and it is true, isn't it? That there are some things that happen in the mind that aren't, have no correlate to, to the world. Right. Like you can mm-hmm. like, I can, I can dream of having sex with George Clooney and I didn't ever have sex with George. You know what I mean? Like there's <laughs> right, no, right, right. there's no, uh, or hot take. Maybe you did. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to, you know, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I no, but I, I think I probably have had a dream about that, but, um, but, <laughs> but I do, I do think like, uh, so, but, but I think Hegel's point is different mm-hmm. from that. Is that mm-hmm. okay? That's true. Like clearly, that you can have dreams and fancies that don't have any objective correlate. Sure, sure. But even they have to be made possible in some way. Mm-hmm. And the main point he makes is that the difference between that kind of thing and and the contradictions that Kant uncovers is Kant is trying to think things to their to their absolute endpoint. Whereas mm-hmm. like some little fancy about George Clooney, that's not a, yeah. that's not thinking things to its end. So it's different. Sure, so sure. it's not the same. So, so thought that 
comes into contradiction when it's trying to think about the beginning of the universe or the beginning mm. of the world, then that's different than this kind of fa- mindless, mindless fancy, you know, that mm. someone has. Yeah, and, and the to equivocate to equivocate both would be like, I mean, would that be like the would that be like a Kantian mistake? I think it would be. I think it would be yeah. because I think I think what and I think that's the com like that's the common rejection of, you know, you can't. You can't go from logic to ontology. Is a I think that's a Kantian. I think it's fair to say that's a Kantian position. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. interesting. Why don't we move on? Because we, we we sort of said paintings aren't the best representation oh, yeah, for yeah. for dialectics <laughs> and psychoanalysis, and then sorry, we sort right. of left I, it. Uh, so I I thought we should no, it's not it's it's equally my fault. But let's uh, let's let's talk to what the 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 seventh and greatest art. It has to say about this. <laughs> well, yeah. So film, of course, like the you know Slavoj has some great examples um, of uh, like of the 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 gaze and in uh, uh, the the moving image, like one being uh, Psycho when um, Norman Bates, who at this point in the film is covering up the murder of his mother, uh, puts uh, Janet Lee in the trunk of her car and pushes it into a marsh, and then there's that moment. Where he's was he smoking a cigarette and watching it sink? I don't think he's normally he's not smoking. Smoke. Oh maybe that. maybe yeah. I did maybe I made that up. So yeah. um, he's I just thought like like nervously like is he's yeah. nervously watching like I think I associate. I think that he's chewing gum nerves. maybe. Chewing gum maybe yeah. 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 And he's watching it sink and then for a moment it doesn't it stops. It's probably he, fifteen seconds. It's fairly long time yeah. that it stops and yeah. and and you're like it's not going to go down. Yeah, and, and you're. Then, you're caught. You're wrapped in that with Norman. You're like, oh my god, no, it's not going to go down, and and like you, you finish the implication of that. Well, obviously, you want it to go down, right? Like yeah, that's the yeah. thing. Like and so and 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 Slavoj thinks this is the. I he doesn't say this, but I think it is maybe the best example of the gaze in the history of cinema. Like I feel like, mm. because you're, you've just seen Norman cover up a murder, like yep. wash the bathroom, clean it out, and then try to sink the body in order to get away with it mm-hmm. and and you're you want the body to sink and we've been aligned with janet lee the whole time the whole time in the film yeah. and she's decided to give back the money so any kind of moral qualms we had about her are out yeah so it's like you're rooting for the person that we're aligned with to be to her murder to be covered up be and mm. so the fact that film has the ability to like twist your let me put it this way to mm. twist your conscious wish so that it comes mm-hmm. very proximate to your unconscious desire is pretty yeah. amazing. Right. Like yeah. you are consciously wishing for that car to go down. And the way Hitchcock makes you aware of that is that he stops the car from going down. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I amazing. think that yeah. I, I, my, my other, the other example I really like, I don't think Slavoj talks about this, um, is, uh, is the end of Silence of the Lambs, the first one. Right. Right. Yeah. Just yeah. stunning when, when, so Lecter and Clarice are on the phone. He's, mm-hmm. ca- I think he's called her at her FBI graduation. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he has. And then he says to her, they have a little chat and he's like, I'll never come after you. I wish you would do the same and not come after me. And she goes, I can't mm-hmm. promise you that. And then he says, I'm having an old friend for dinner. Mm-hmm. And that's the and then she just I think that's the last line she might say Doctor Lecter Doctor Lecter but he's putting yeah. it on the phone, um, but it's a great last line because it on the one so he's seeing his old the guy that tormented him while he was in prison and a guy that like made moves on Clarice and his mm-hmm. Doctor Chilton is his name and, and oh who's and, just been an ass throughout so, the whole right film. he's just a yeah. horrible guy yeah. and he, yeah and so but he. I don't think he deserves the death penalty. I mean, like if you asked us, like if we were on a court trying him, we'd say like maybe a fine. Maybe um, a, fi- yeah, a fine. He's, he's kind of a jerk. He should rehabilitate kind of a jerk, his personality a, a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't yeah. deserve to be eaten by another human being. No, he does not. And not only that, yeah. but I think most of us would say if we're going to deliver capital punishment, like cannibalism probably isn't the way that we would deliver it right like that's we tough would, it's tough it's a little <laughs> yeah. harsh yeah that's harsh. so and yet when we hear him say i'm having an old friend for dinner and turn to follow dr chilton every spectator is like go eat him eat him yeah get him, oh get go him. eat that guy that go guy's a him. jerk i can't eat wait him. for that to happen yeah yeah, yeah. 
So that's pretty, I think that's a pretty great example of the way our desire is implicated in the image that we, you know, like we, you go to a, I mean, that's what I think is great about film. Like I think in works of art, a lot of people say I can really see myself in there. Like I can really, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Whereas I think with the film, you really feel on the one hand, you feel this total separation, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you, you have this process of identifying with figures or characters. Maybe. I mean, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if that whole discourse of identification is right. But you, you certainly feel invested in, the, in what's going well, on I, in the frame. I think that it's both. Well, I mean, it's both. I think, I think is that if that's the lesson of this podcast is that it, it has to be it has to be both to, to, to some extent. Like it cannot be it has to be a there has to be distance because you everyone under like even like I've talked about this with like one of my classes, like where students were saying that like they when they were they were trying to make the argument that um, they identify with like identification with the film. Now, identification with the film coming from like Mulvey means there's no distance between the viewer right. and the, and the, and the screened image. There's no distance at all. And when my students were trying to make the point to agree with that, I, it was so interesting. What they were saying was that, well, they, they identify when the character is relatable and that's already a bit of distance from the image. You're understanding right. them as characters. They're not like, real people in front of your eyes that like you got to know for two hours. Right. If then, there was no distance, you'd be like, have you ever seen the a clip from uh, Wells's Don Quixote where it's a very short clip where he, he sees someone in danger on the screen. He gets up and starts fr- knifing the screen. Oh, the that's movie great. Screen. He's at the movies and he starts to stab and, and yeah. cuts, ends up shredding the screen. And it's an amazing scene. And I think if there was no distance, everyone would be doing that all the time. All right? the time. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Well, what is it? That great line in Naked and Naked Gun, Frank Drebin, when you hear about his disciplinary record, is when he uh, killed someone, Shakespeare in the park. And he said, like, well, listen, when I see three weirdos in togas stabbing someone, I shoot the bastard is what I do. <laughs> it, you, you know, like, because I didn't understand it was, a, it was Julius Caesar, right? Like, right, right, right. So, um, like, that's the, that's the thing, right? Like, everybody... W- should be like you know saving the uh they should be trying to they should be trying to save the world yeah. along with the marvel yeah. superheroes yeah. in every film yeah. but because that's that that is the end that is the end of um like understand of, of identification that's like right. carrying that concept right. but to the end. i think and it doesn't I mean, hold yeah it doesn't hold but i think this lector thing is interesting because on the one hand in the film you're he's not the character you're sort of you're not you're not inserted with him in the film, right? Like right. that's what I think is so great about the end because you're much more aligned with 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 Clarice and her mm-hmm. investigation, and you feel mm-hmm. bad for the woman that's kid. So, so and Lecter is a kind of scary figure. I mean, you you suppose him to know. I think he functions a lot like a psychoanalyst. I'm not the first person yeah. to say that, but yeah. um, but but uh, relative to Clarice, but mm-hmm. um, but you don't, you're not really identified with him. So that's what I think is so great about the end is that you're forced to see that like this foreign intruder in the field that I feel comfortable with, that I'm mm-hmm. sort of, I'm, I'm aligned with. It's actually the intruder in that where I'm located, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the, mm-hmm. see, to me, that's the real, that's when you can really show the gaze in the cinema, that's the, or the object and the dialectical relation of subject to the external world. It's not that you're identified with what is most like you in that, you know what I mean? Right, like that, right, and right. That, that's, I think the key, like, yeah. And yeah, that's what's yeah. you know wrong about the Mulvey way of thinking. Like you don't, you're not identified with what's most like you. The real radical point of cinema comes when you actually find yourself identified with the point that, that sort of undermines your symbolic identity. And again, that's the dialectics of subjectivity for Lacan, mm-hmm. right? Like that mm-hmm. that you're on the one hand you are this subjectivity, but more than that, you are this thing in you more than you that undermines every symbolic identity that you have. Which you know ties back to the idea of death drive as well. Mm. No, that's that's fabulous. Right? right? That's no that's right. totally, totally. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely right. Um I I, like I have, I have another point to add on to that, but I think that that's a really, really nice point to, to end on. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to kill the, uh, I don't want to kill the quilting. Point. Kill, kill the vibe. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. the quilting point. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. That sounds good, Ryan. Over and out. Over and out, Todd. Thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs>